Good afternoon, everyone, or maybe morning where you are. I'd like to welcome y'all to Public Servants Announcement. Um, this week, we have a special guest to me. It's someone I've worked with before. It's someone who has years and years and years of experience in her field. Well, she has taught in education for well over 30 years at several different levels in several different areas of the state at all different socioeconomic levels, all different racial and ethnic backgrounds. She has a plethora of knowledge. She has probably forgotten more in about education than I could even possibly gather knowing. Um, and that is Mrs. Catherine Smith. Thank you for those kind words to start with. But yes, I've been pretty much all over the state and I've taught everything from first grade to college. First grade was kind of, I fell into because I was supposed to be subbing for just a little time for a friend who was going to be on maternity leave and she didn't come back. <laughs> so I wound up doing almost a year's worth of first grade. But, the funny thing is I got my first job because I was subbing for someone who was supposed to come back and then they didn't go on maternity leave. They just retired. Um <laughs> They, they left for Christmas break. They are they left for Thanksgiving break. We're supposed to be coming back at the new year and decided they didn't want to. <laughs> and that's how I got my first job. So that is something we have in common. But I appreciate you taking time out to meet with me. Um, just some background information. I messaged her this morning and we were able to get a time together. And I was like, hey, what about tonight? And she was like, absolutely, that works. Um, which describes who she is perfectly like she is incredibly accommodating to the people around her and she really does things that make other people helpful um so as I've already said she's a teacher but one thing I've never like I've never personally asked and we worked together I think for five years what made you want to become a teacher I sort of didn't have a choice and I don't I did have a choice but it was just everything in my life kept pointing me to teaching Okay. In first grade, they actually gave me a group of students to teach reading to when I was a first grader. And by high school, I was tutoring. And then when I went to college, I had um, professors ask me to stay after class and it terrified me the first time. And it would be, we have someone that's struggling in this class and they're looking for a tutor. Would you tutor them? So I wound up making a pretty good college living tutoring people in classes I was actually taking. And it kind of just kept pointing me. I really thought I wanted to be a nurse at one time. But everything that happened in college kept pointing me to the fact that my calling, my gift, where God wanted me to be, was helping people learn. So that's where I've been ever since. Okay. So what is, what is the key? And I normally hold this question to the end. But what is the key to longevity? Like, how have you been able to do it in the classroom? A lot of people are in education for a long time. But how are you able to remain a classroom teacher for, I mean, are we at four decades or very close to four decades? About 40 years So at various what, levels. How do, you, how do you maintain that longevity? A couple of things. Um, first of all, I have no desire to be anywhere but in the classroom because I absolutely feel that I love working with kids and I love my students. So I've never had a desire to, like some people move into being principals or um, other kinds of ad admins, but 
And then I've been fortunate to have variety in what I do. So it doesn't get old. Like even this year, I'm teaching something completely different than I've been teaching for the last several years. I think those changes keep you fresh and passionate. Mm -hmm. And the mm -hmm. fact that there's always a new challenge. I mean, the world keeps changing, teaching keeps changing. So it's not like I teach like I did 40 years ago. Right. So it, it, it's very dynamic. So that's basically it. What has that been like for you? That's, that's a, like you said, you, you don't teach the same way you taught 40 years ago. What has that been like? How have you been able to keep up with the trends that are in teaching? As a teacher, I know trends come every two or three years. How have you been able to keep up and maintain whatever the new status quo of teaching is? The one thing that hasn't changed is it's always about the students. So I just learn whatever I have to learn to do what I have to do for my kids. I know that's not the answer you wanted, but I have pretty good technical and computer skills. And so that has made some of the transitions easier. Um, not that I could actually build my own computer, but I can do a lot of things with one that a lot of people can't do. So that's helped, but it's, if, if you're really wanting to find a way to reach your students and help your students and teach your students, you will adjust to what they need. So it's not always following the trend that is teaching. It is just doing what you know is best for your students. Right. It's not necessarily an edict that comes from above. And there's a lot of those and they have changed through the years. But it's realizing that you have to adapt because kids have changed. They, it's not a better or worse thing. They're just different. Students today think differently and learn differently than they did. And I hate to go back to how long ago that was. But uh, in the 70s, uh, you know, students were dealing with a very different world and a very different set of situations. And they learn differently. But kids today are... Um, wired their brains are actually wired differently research says that because they're doing screens from the time they're what, four or five months old right and you, so you have to make the changes you need to teach the children you have in front of you right right so do you think all teachers recognize that i think teachers that and successfully stay in the classroom, recognize that. And I, you know, I, and I don't mean to sound judgmental, but I, the teachers who don't recognize that are not happy and are not successful and neither are their students. And they have trouble building relationships with their kids. Okay. So building relationships, is that something that you've always found important? Like, is that one of the things that's changed or is that something that you've always done throughout your entire career of teaching? I think I've always done it. I, it it's just who I am. I'm a people person. She is. And, no, she's not lying. She is, she is, she is the people person. She, she likes talking and getting to know people. I have... Um, teaching grandchildren and I don't know how I don't mean my child grandchildren I mean due to Facebook and I'm mainly on Facebook I know it's old people's social media but that's where my former students are and I was very fortunate to go through one small town more than once in my teaching career and I actually taught the children and grandchildren of the people I taught the first time I was at that school and 
I had relationships with those people way back in the 70s when I started and it's and then stay in touch because one of the real blessings with all these wonderful social media things we have now is that they can stay you can stay in touch with people even when you move far away or you're no longer actively at that school so I think it's something I've always done I don't think students I had 40 years ago would look for me on Facebook if I hadn't had a relationship with them at the time. Absolutely. And I think that speaks to the impact you're having on people that, that like that they're even trying to find you, like you said, 40 years later. But I have to go back to the, it, it's amazing to, what does it feel like to have taught someone's grand grandmother or grandfather? What does that feel like? The first time it happened, it actually totally shocked me because I took me a little while to realize that the young lady in my classroom was the granddaughter of a, they're all my favorite students, okay, of a favorite student I had had my first time through that community because it was a case of always on the mother's side, so the name wasn't there. But then one time she happened to mention, and it's this part is tragic. I knew that her mother had, the grandmother, the former student I had had been killed in a car accident. And then she started mentioning losing her grandmother and how much that had affected her life. And she talked about a few details of the accident. And I was going, I, th- I will mention the name because it's not a last name. Was your grandmother Kathy? That happens to be my name. And she said, yes. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I taught her. And I was just in shock because I've, I've taught children of people I taught before. But that was the first time that I realized I was actually teaching a grandchild of someone I taught. So for me, teaching is very mentally draining. Um, A lot of people have asked me whether I feel it physically, and I don't feel it physically as much unless I let the mental part become overwhelming. But it's very mentally draining for me, and I haven't been teaching nearly. I mean, I haven't been alive 40 years, let alone teaching 40 years. So how... like. How have you dealt with the mental strain of education? That part can be hard, I'll be honest. Um, and especially now that I said, mentioned what I said, mm-hmm. you know, it's, I think the hardest thing emotionally is when you lose kids. Yeah. I know we've shared losing one. Yes. Uh, and you never forget the ones you've lost. And I talk about, to me in my heart, it's what I call the empty desk because you always see them. Um, I moved into a new classroom, which you didn't know, so I no longer have my empty desk. But even if other kids are sitting in it two or three years later, when you look at that desk, you you see that student. So we we make relationships with them, and they matter to us. And as English teachers, they share so much in their writing about struggles that even other teachers may not know that they have, or sometimes that they're not even comfortable voicing out loud. And so when you know all that burden and turmoil that the kids have, you carry it home with you. You do. And I think you have to have a system or a way or a place that's something that helps you de-stress and relax. And I do think that's different different from other professions. And I think that's really why we do need those summer breaks. Right. People sometimes think... Um, 
for me, it's, it's emotional rest more than anything. And usually the first two to three weeks, I am, I'm kind of like doing a, a mental detox before I'm ready to even think about anything else. Because first of all, if you don't care deeply about the kids, they know it's fake. And I have taught, like you mentioned, kids from all socioeconomic levels and pretty much all ethnic backgrounds. But it doesn't matter. All of them can spot a fake. So how do you do that over and over again with no, I mean, you've taught 40, almost 40. I don't, I don't know the exact number, so I'm going to keep saying almost 40 years. But you, how do you do that over and over again every year, even with the break? Like, I felt like I needed for my personal sanity the full year. Like the two months just wasn't enough to just come back and try to do it again. How do you keep going? Okay, I will say that a lot of it's faith-based. Um, I do feel that my calling, and I, I don't know if you want this in your podcast or not, so you I can do. edit no, it out. No, 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 no. I, I've talked about my calling and my purpose. Okay. And I, I feel that my calling is to work with young people and to teach. And when I... I'm through walking the public school journey. I'm hoping I can still find a position then somewhere in a uh, church school, private school, faith-based school. I God hasn't told me yet, well done, you good and faithful servant. It's time to move on to somewhere else. But as far as, so prayer helps big time. But as far as you mentioned, you know, I hate to say the kids get us through, but that same horrific instance that we shared when I got to school that morning, they had a meeting for the teachers that we were required to go to. When I got to my room, I had had that student the year before mm -hmm. in a class of 17, not a class of 17, a class of 30, but I had 17 varsity football players in that class. Um, and so those boys were lined up outside my door to check on me. Mm -hmm. I mean, when the kids are there for you like that, you kind of get through those times together. Like you mentioned the one that yeah. it's not like it was, I was just, it was incredible to me that they were lined up waiting for me to get there. And I was so worried about them and they were worried about, about me. Cause that's the quality of kids we have at that place. We used to teach together, yeah. but um, and I've lost kids. The hardest has been losing kids to suicide. I've lost kids to murder. I've lost kids to illness. I've lost kids to car wrecks. But the hardest to me has been losing kids to suicide. And that, I don't know that I ever get over, to be honest. I don't. Um, is that a common, is that a commonality that you share as well? I think so. And I wasn't there when it happened, but I had a young man in class and it happened within an hour. He walked out of my room. It was the end of the school day. And within an hour, he was gone. I was about the time I got home, I get the phone call mm -hmm. with what had happened. And uh, to this day, I all I question whether there were there was some sign I missed, if there was something that was said in class that day that I didn't realize was a trigger. And that was a very difficult year to finish because he was a beloved student by the other kids. And they were basically emotional zombies uh, for months at a you know, the administration's always worried about test scores and right. all of that kind of thing. And I was just worried about making sure none of the rest of them did right. the same thing. 
my well, focus was a little different. But it's tough. Yeah. So how does that affect your everyday life? Like, how do you feel like being a teacher has affected you, has affected you outside of the school building? My own children will tell you that they spent their lives uh, understanding that we weren't going to do anything this weekend because grades were due Monday. And uh, my son was always so patient with his January birthday. Uh, a lot of people that aren't in teaching don't, don't realize they pay you early in December. And then it's a very long trek to, <laughs> to that January, January birthday. So he was actually, you know, my daughter was good about her birthday too, but it was in November. You know, it's, that's okay. But he was pretty good about delaying birthday celebrations till after teacher payday. Uh, so, you know, that. And I know some people say it's wrong to say a teacher should, there's people that say teaching should just be what you do. It shouldn't be who you are. But I can't help it for me. It's who I am. And so it's, you know, it's just something that has always been in my kids' lives and has always been in the rest of my family knows. You know, we have these times of the year when I'm particularly busy or there's a lot going on, but it it does impact your if it does impact your life outside of school, definitely. And you remember, and I have to voice one little thing, how much teaching has changed. Okay. When I started teaching, it impacted your life to the point that there were many things that the community expected teachers to do or not do just because they were teachers. In those early years, for instance, a teacher wouldn't go out to dinner and have a glass of wine because teachers weren't supposed to be seen drinking in public, those kinds of things. But now that's not an issue. Yeah, I was, it, and I'm not gonna say as long as I've been teaching, but in the last five or six years, we have a group of teachers that'll go out and have drinks together at the end of the school year, at the end of the semester, at the end of like right before spring break as just kind of a thing we do to enhance our culture, which is something I enjoy because I get to new, every time I go to one of those, I meet a new teacher who's in the building. But I mean, you know, schools are big now. So if it's 300 teachers, there's no, like you can go a full year and not see a person working right. in the same school, the same hours, getting paid by the same people, answering to the same people, and just never see them. And so going to those things, we're able to build camaraderie. How does that make you feel to be held to a different standard morally and ethically? We're about to go somewhere. Okay, hold on. Um, I don't have a problem with it, other than the fact that now it seems there's many people in the political and social world that seems to, they seem to have lost all respect for teachers. And they now some, for some reason, converted us into some kind of evil beings that are trying to destroy our culture, our country, our, their children, our beliefs. And that's been a real change in say the last three to four years, as opposed to the other 36. Right, yeah, I completely agree. Like you said, about three or four years ago, it became more of a political statement to be a teacher. And what we were taught, you can't say this in the classroom because it may corrupt these kids or it may make think, kids think this. And my thing as a teacher had always been, 
I want the kids to be able to figure out who they are, not who they are based on who I am, but who they are. I want my students to have the openness and feel comfortable enough in my four walls to be whoever they think they want to be right now. And I know that'll change from August to June, but I want them to have the freedom in my room to really express and, and think about it and figure it out and ask questions and learn because that's what school is for. Like we're here to educate. And I think the most important thing we teach as teachers is being comfortable in your skin and figuring out how to advocate for you and figuring, cause those are lessons like we teach English, which is something that translates well beyond the classroom at any time. But English, like it doesn't matter how well you can read or write if you hate yourself, if you don't know how to advocate for yourself, if you don't know how to tell someone that they've hurt you in a polite manner, tell someone you disagree with them in a polite manner. Those are the things we're teaching. And it feels to me like the government has told us we don't trust your judgment anymore. Um, we don't care how long you went to school. We don't care the experience you have. We don't trust your judgment. We feel like as parents, as politicians, we are morally better than you are. And so we're going to tell you what we want you to tell our kids. Yes. And my dual, because back in the day, as we, I hate to say that, you used to be required to have to have two teaching fields. Okay. So mine is English and social studies. And the coaches always wind up teaching social studies. So I've nearly always wound up teaching English. But I firmly believe that even just within the confines of English, mm -hmm. for them to understand the literature, for them to have content in their writing, for them to be able to be effective communicators, they have to know what's going on in the world. And a lot of our kids don't go beyond TikTok if we don't lead them there. Not that there's anything wrong with TikTok, just they, they couldn't tell you. So one of the things until the climate change that I've always felt was really important is having our journal topics deal with current events and current issues. And there's, their beliefs on those issues could be widely varied but they need to learn how to express and talk about what they did believe. And like you said, learn how to respectfully have discussions back and forth when the, there were disagreements. But they've pretty much politically made talking about current issues and current events an absolute no-no. But kids respond so much better in class if what they're doing is relevant. Right. The relevancy has been pulled away from us. And what's relevant where I teach now would not necessarily be the same things that would be relevant where I taught before, because my students are different. If that may, if that making sense without being specific about no, no. About that. But when I taught along the border, which I did for fifteen years, um, the 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 issues and the things students were dealing with there are different than they're dealing what they deal with in the metro when I taught at a farming community, those kids, ever kids have problems and issues. They had a different set of issues and what was relevant for them was different. But this is the first time in this long career that there are so many places and areas where they're no longer trusting our judgment. They're not trusting me to put appropriate books on my library shelf. They're not trusting me to have appropriate selections that we read in class. 
they're not trusting me to respect and find my students where they are and accept them for who they are and where they are. Because to me, when I started teaching, I told you I saw it as a calling. It's my calling to teach all the children. And I have a very diverse population of kids. It's not my job to judge them. Mm -hmm. It's not my job to tell them who they should be. It's my job to, I know this sounds really dry, but it really is my job to love them, support them, and teach them because we are teachers. Um, and I actually, I really hate that term. term. Right. I don't think we are teachers. I think we should be facilitators. I don't think you teach kids. You may teach a second grade or something, but I think by high school, we are almost like tour guides. Yes. We guide yes. them into areas and they are the ones that have to actually do the learning. But now the political climate is such that it's very difficult to do those things. So that has made it tough. And I think with as part of the teacher shortage, I think we've lost many good teachers who just aren't, the fight isn't left to keep fighting the battle at this point. Absolutely, because for me, even last year teaching, and we, we were on the same team, at least for most of the year. At the end of the year, we, we, <laughs> we all spread out. <laughs> yeah. um, but we, we were on the same team. And so we, in, in one of our team meetings, I said, well, I'm, I'm still going to talk about this. And you and the other teacher said, well, we don't really feel comfortable talking about that. And I said, I get it, <laughs> but... <laughs> This is and, a conversation that needs to and be And I realized our, it isn't that we were cowards and our situations are the same but different. Dif right. That I am my only source of support. Right. So when you get to the point where your job might be on the line, you may not like having to follow the rules, but you sort of you have to. <laughs> right. You And that was something I always said, even when I left and I went into a leadership position. Every time I talk to a teacher about building relationships, I said, building to really build relationships, there's some lines you have to cross. And you have to find that fine line where you're not crossing it to the point where you're putting your job in jeopardy. Working with teachers, I understand 80% of teachers, and this is the politician side of me, 80% of teachers live paycheck to paycheck. And so politicians feel free to say, you can't talk about that. If you do, you'll lose your job. And we know you won't now that we put your job on the line because you work paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, the sad thing is teachers keep reelecting those same politicians. Yeah. So we can, you... it could be such a powerful voting body if we would vote based just on education. But there's so many other issues. And so people wind up not being that unified front. People know that education is important, but they don't put it over their emotions. They always vote emotionally first, and then education is just kind of the recipient of whatever the downfall is. The saddest thing and about some of the restrictions, these political restrictions that we face, and the fact that they don't trust us, is that Okay, first of all, I'll say, I'll qualify this. I am very patriotic. I was raised by parents who, my dad was a World War II veteran. My mom lived 
through the Great Depression and World War II in her formative years. And I'm, I'm serious, people sometimes laugh, but when I was really young and TV was first starting to really be a factor, when something when they would play the national anthem, uh, we would were expected to stand up at home. So I'm very patriotic, but that doesn't mean I think my country is perfect. I think that you can love an imperfect nation totally. But my but while I recognize it's not perfect, I want it to get better. And yes, I've seen a lot. Okay. I'm I'm old. I'll I'll verify that, okay? Uh, I started school when schools were segregated. Uh, they And our town was so segregated that they ran separate school buses even on the school bus routes. And I remember that one bus was not very well maintained and didn't have good brakes and had broken windows and we know that who was on that bus. I remember that. Y'all, she, she may not want to say it. The colored bus wasn't maintained well. <laughs> right. The the um, the separate school. Um, I, but I remember I was an elementary school, but I was old enough to see and recognize those differences. The One of the finest teachers I ever worked with was the teacher in the and I hate to use the word colored school, but that's what they called it back then, okay? At the, at the black school. Um, she, when the schools, when the courts finally forced uh, the schools to consolidate, she moved to the school where I later taught and where I was a student. And she taught there for about 30 years. And she was one of the finest teachers I have ever worked with to the point people would be calling the principal to try to get their kids in her class. So I don't think there was a educational shortage for the kids, but it was only because the power of that one woman, not because of the facilities. Right. Is that, am I making sense? Yeah. That? We she was incredible. We understand that the, and we, we've experienced this, both of us have experienced this because we both worked at low socioeconomic schools. We can be the best teacher on earth if we don't have the supplies. It's only so much we can do. Like, yes, and, and there's only so much that, that could have been done at that time. And, right. and her name is Miss Powell, and I don't mind saying it. She deserves to have her name. Her. Oh, no, we, we do teacher shout out. So if you have a teacher okay. who, who uh, you want to recognize she's, her, she's no longer on this earth, but Miss Powell was an incredible educator. And, um, but that's kind of where things started with me. So I've seen all kinds of growth and yes, there has been progress, but there is still so much more progress to be made. And unless we are honest about the things that are not perfect in our country and work to make them better, we don't keep making progress. And it, you know, I was, uh, one of my, I'll say one of my big role models growing up is somebody that most people have not heard of, which was Barbara Jordan, because she was a person who was also dealing with the fact that women were very much lacking in rights and lacking in voice also. So she was frequently the first woman to do things 
and the first African-American to do things. It was kind of, as she was breaking barriers, she was breaking them for both groups. Right. And um, was an incredible speaker. Just, I could have listened to her talk all day. But the, the thing is that we still have things to improve in our country. And right now I get concerned, and I don't mean, I don't want to really turn this into a politics discussion. It's supposed to be an education discussion. But one of the skills when you mentioned learning to talk to each other that we seem to have lost as a nation is that ability to talk to each other. So the middle seems to have vanished and the two sides get further and further apart. That's why I think it's so important that we teach our kids, our students, how to have those conversations. Right. Because right. healing is only going to happen when everybody quits talking all the time and we also start listening. Right. right. We, we, as a country, as a, as a nation, as, as just a society of people, I feel like we have, we have lost the ability to say what you said hurt me because, and, and take that in empathetically, like not, not the intent, not, I didn't mean to hurt you, so it's you shouldn't be hurt, but I didn't mean to hurt you, and now I'm sorry that I hurt you. Because on a human level, we've lost respect for each other. That's what I think it boils down to. It's it's the respect of each other as humans first. And, and the, the acceptance. We have, yeah, we have more in common than we do different. So we're so focused on our differences that we're lacking respect and empathy on the basic human level. And I think on the basic human level, there's not the differences people think. Mm -hmm. People want safety. Right. People mm -hmm. want opportunity. People want their families to be supported. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that people want the freedom to explore and try new things. Mm -hmm. And I think that that crosses cultural and racial lines. But right now, people don't, like I said, they don't listen, and we've become more and more polarized. And so that's not helping anybody. And that's why we have these long list of books they want off our library shelves. Right. Because I can't know the experience of one of the books on my shelf that I haven't taken off yet is called La Linea, and it is the experience of a teenager. Uh, crossing the border to try to find his family that's in this, the family had come ahead of him in this country. I don't know what that experience is like, mm -hmm. but I can mm -hmm. learn to be empathetic about it if I read a book by somebody that has had that experience. Right. And so many of the things they're wanting us not to talk about or not to have on our shelves are things that can help us see what the life experience was like for somebody who's different than we are. Now, one of the things I love about Crying Out Teach is that it is an incredibly diverse student body. And for the most part, inside my classroom at least, those kids get along with each other so well. I can't say what they do on weekends, but inside the classroom, they, I, I've said if the world could just be like these kids, it would be so much of a better place. They're not quick to judge, they listen. They do uh, understand that they all come from very different backgrounds and different situations, but they respect those differences. And sometimes mm -hmm. they just come along. Yeah, in class, 
and your classrooms are obviously like you breed an environment, you create an environment of safety, of openness, of transparency. Um, and you create that as a teacher, you are open with your students, you are transparent, you give your opinion, you are honest about the things you know, and the things you don't know, you have a wealth of knowledge and experience. But I've, I've seen a lot of classrooms, students in classrooms, when they feel safe, are open, they are, and not just to talk, but to listen, they are willing to learn when they feel safe. And that was one of the things you hit on. That's just the one of the basic needs that we're all looking for is that safety and the acceptance and the ability to explore who we are and the safety of ourselves and the people around us. But what I think is lacking is the fact that our safety is hidden in, like we feel like if we're safe, they can't be safe. And if we're focusing on their safety, then we can't be focusing on our safety and it's pitting us against each other. But kids don't, when they are in classroom environments, from what I've seen, kids are willing to share and understand and listen and be empathetic in the classroom. And that is, a lot of that is compliments to the teacher who creates that environment, but a lot of it is compliments to the safety that the classroom still holds. I still feel like with the church, or your place of worship, whether it's a mosque, synagogue, church, those buildings and the classrooms are the safest places on earth. And we are we are working really hard to protect them, even with the things like now we are having mass shootings in churches, mass bombings in churches, mass shootings in schools, which is threatening the safety. Thank but I feel you. like it is the last, like that is the last straw. Like for me personally and politically, that was my last straw. Like we can't take the one place where kids are supposed to feel safe. We can't take that away from them. So I, without disclosing anything too much, uh, I had a student mm, three years ago that you would never, until you read what he wrote, you would never think about what he was saying, but he was voicing almost exactly what you were saying. Uh, he's, he was, he seemed to be tough and very together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then he writes that it was one of, probably was one thing you, I, one of those get to know you things at the beginning of the year. What's one thing about you you would want the teacher to know? And he says, and it starts with, most people won't say this, but I want the teacher to know that I love school. And then he says, I love school because my life is chaos. Mm -hmm. He says, my home is chaos. My neighborhood is not safe. Now, most of our neighborhoods where we teach are safe, but he said, but my home is a constant battleground. He said, in school, he said, I can get fed. He says, I have people that care about me. I have people that listen to me. And I'm so glad summer is over and I'm back at school. Right. Um, and I think that although he voiced it, I think we have, a certain percentage of that population at anywhere you teach that's that same situation that they're they may not be wanting to say it but mm -hmm. they there's kids that look forward to summer but there's kids who look forward to school starting because it I is that safe place. i would even say a majority of kids look forward to school more than they look forward to the breaks the summer breaks, the winter. I think a lot of kids can take Thanksgiving break. A lot of kids can take spring break because those are days and weeks. But when you get into the three months off of the summer where you aren't guaranteed lunch and breakfast, 
when you get to that time where you're not guaranteed that I'll be in a place that's protected, there's adults everywhere. Like it, a lot of the kids don't really recognize that until they get to, we've had the privilege of teaching a bunch of different grades levels, but we see juniors and seniors tend to recognize more. This is it. This is my last chance to be a kid. So I'm going to do that here. I'm going to let you be the, and they really take advantage of that. So what is that like? How has is that something that's changed? Because I've only ever I've seen it. I've taught high school the last decade, so I've seen it over the last decade, and my experience has been the same. Juniors and seniors recognize clearly that they get to be safe, and this may be the last chance they have to be safe and to have other people control things. Like they feel like they don't have to control everything. And so is that is that a new thing or is that something that's I don't think it's new because except maybe trickling down to juniors everybody jokes about senioritis mm-hmm. but for years seniors all of a sudden that last couple of months before graduation it hits them in their face that they've always known exactly what they would be doing the next year you know if you're in first grade you're going to go to second uh, if, if when we come back from Christmas break, you're going to be going still to classes that this this all this freedom and all of this unknown that they thought they wanted is suddenly there in front of them. And they get almost maudlin. Sometimes they get so sentimental about it being their last the last chance they get to do all of these senior things. And I think that um, I'm going to go somewhere else with this, too. I think we saw that kind of emotional damage to the kids that spent a year away from school during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, I think that they didn't have that security of knowing exactly what was going to happen next. And it's been a hard road. We're still seeing it with, uh, I have all seniors now with the seniors this year who are, absolutely wonderful kids. I had them last year as juniors, the best class I've taught in a long time, but there's still emotional damage that happened from that year that they really weren't in school. And so I think they, I think they're even more appreciative of being back in school as seniors because of that year away. Right. Because for kids who were freshmen when we started school, left for spring break and didn't come back. The spring break that lasted forever. And so they they didn't finish their freshman year, didn't have a sophomore year, and then came back and were expected to be leaders, upperclassmen. And they junior year was a little rough at the start of the year because, and you know that, so many of them had to take on adult responsibilities. And then we were expecting them to go back into the role of being children. Right. It took a little while for all of us to learn and adjust. And now they're seniors and they are... Well, you had that class as juniors too. You know what a fantastic group of kids it is. But uh, they, I think they're even more appreciative of everything about senior year because of that year that they kind of lost. Yeah. And I think you may have just opened everybody's eyes to what senioritis really is because I've never thought about it that way. You just, you just like opened my eyes and I'm sure you did this for other people. Senioritis may not be laziness, it may be students taking advantage of the last chance they have to be kids. 
So I can do this because I'll get in a little trouble doing it now. In six months, this could ruin my life. I'm going to do this now because I don't know what's next. I have to get everything out of this. All of the things I haven't done for 13 years, I have to get that out. Because once I get out of here, I can no longer, it's no longer an option. And that, that brings a whole new lens to what senioritis really is. And I think a lot of educators, especially senior teachers and high school administrators and parents of juniors and seniors can look and see those actions, those attitudes, those behaviors from a different standpoint. Because I really think that's it. And they are, um, that's why though, it is also why when you teach seniors, you try to get all of the really important things done uh, before March. Yeah, yeah, like before January, if you can. Before January, if you can, but for sure before March. But um, it's, you know, it's different. Every grade level is different, everything. But that, but this group will be the last group, I guess, juniors to some extent, but the last group that really had so much disruption to their high school mm-hmm. experience. And, um you know, and I see it across the board because this year I'm teaching everything from um, co-teach. If people don't know, that's a class that's heavily special ed students, not all, but heavily populated to IB lit and everything in between. Um, But that gap, and it's, everybody talks about the learning gap, Mm -hmm. but it was more an emotional gap to me and a maturity gap is still there and we're still working on bridging it and getting things back to some kind of a normal for them. And then they're gonna graduate and it's gonna be, they'll hit that senioritis bubble and it'll be over, but we can't give back that year. I mean, time only goes in one direction. Right. I know that as an educator, um, you weren't on our junior team that year, but but the other teacher that was with us Mm -hmm. was, I think we worked very hard to learn how to teach kids remotely. Right. I think we were really successful and learned some str- learned some things about teaching that have helped us be better teachers in general mm-hmm. because we had to become very focused and very intentional with everything that we built into lessons right. and be a little bit more, the word I want to use, be a lot more specific about breaking things down into little pieces and providing I'm going to use educator talk and everybody that's listening isn't we call it scaffolding but Mm -hmm. building in the support students might need anticipating those questions they would have asked in class if we'd been in class and trying to find ways to already have them answered and the things they would access having to learn online and I think it's made us better teachers after the fact because we now bring a lot of those strategies into how we teach in general. But it was having to completely re- talk about relearning. You mentioned that earlier and adjusting. That year was having to completely relearn for just about every teacher in the nation. Right. Um, how we taught, how we thought about teaching, how we delivered instruction, how we evaluated students. And that is my least favorite thing about teaching. I, I have always said, I wish we had a magic supermarket scanner Mm -hmm. that could just uh, scan them and produce, since we have to give grades, Mm -hmm. 
mm -hmm. a grade mm -hmm. based on what the student's ability to learn is and what they learned as a maybe a percentage of that ability to learn mm -hmm. in a perfect world, which we don't have. But I hate, I hate grading and I hate, I hate giving grades, but we have you to do it. Both. <laughs> it goes with the profession, but I that's the one thing about it I hate. You too? Yes. Yeah. So actually last year I stopped giving grades. <laughs> um and I didn't do it rebellious. And what I was told from administration was don't let it affect test scores. So do it, but they need to be learning. And, and they were. And of course they were. Like, and that speaks to the confidence that our administration had in me as a teacher, but it also speaks to our administration. They are very hands-on and hands-off at the same time. They allow us to be experts in our field. And so when I said, this is the reason, like they didn't just say, oh, you don't want to give grades? Fine, don't. But I had to go in with, look, I've done this research. This is how grades affect them emotionally. This is how grades affect them physically. These are the results that grades are getting. If I remove grades, I believe I can get better results in the end. And they said, okay, try it. And I tried it and it was very successful. And they looked at it and they said, now, how do we get all the other teachers to do this? And I said, I don't know. It made planning a lot harder on me because I also had to go in and say, you didn't do this your best. You have to try it. You have to do it again. So I remember there was one unit last year that was supposed to take like three weeks. And I think it ended up taking all of us like eight weeks. And it was just something like for, there were different, it, we all had ended up having different issues for why it took us eight weeks. But that was really the green light for me that was like, every class has their own set of issues, but the one constant is, we don't have enough time. <laughs> like, y'all aren't giving us enough time to teach the kids. Right. The pace you want us to tell fast. them. The pace is too fast. And the other thing, and again, this, you may not want me to go there, but I'm going to go there. We over-test. I, kids do not learn on a day they take a test. And if you, if I could make a magic wand, I would make testing go away. I don't mind products. I think they show me better what they've learned when they produce something. But if you go back to the fact that a lot of schools are already starting to pre-test for state testing in second grade, and you take the curriculum assessments or the benchmarks or whatever that school district calls it, plus all the days lost for testing and retesting. By the time kids are seniors, they've probably lost a full academic year of learning just to taking tests. And they don't learn on a day they're taking a test. Right. Um, and I think that it would, in my magic wand for a perfect thing with school, uh, we would, again, almost what you were doing, do away with grades per se and this evaluation should be based on, given their abilities, mm -hmm. what percentage of learning occurred for them. Because I have students right now with what I'm teaching with wide ranges of abilities. Mm -hmm. So I have students whose ability level means that they are only going, if you put them on a standard, the same standard as everybody else, they could be giving me 100% of everything they have. And if there were not some accommodation or modification or whatever term we want to use, they, they would fail every single class. 
if it's based just on them taking a state test and um, reaching a certain standard on a state test because the state test is very one size fits all and the kids aren't. And that's so backwards <laughs> to what we're supposed to be doing as educators. And it hurts the kids at the top too mm -hmm. because um, they, the, the, the state testing, okay, this wonderful in Texas, it's the STAR test. Uh, first of all, is making a fortune for testing companies that could be used to help kids learn. But the brighter kids, it's the brightest of our light bulbs. It under challenges them. Mm -hmm. And also, last little bit of my soapbox, and then I promise I'll get off of it. Uh, as an English teacher, by the time we get the kids, they hate to read. Because everything done with reading now from lowest grades on is specific to the state testing. So they can't learn to be fluent readers who inhale what they read just because they love the story or because it's fascinating new information. If they are those kinds of readers, we don't have to worry about them being writers because they're getting brain imprints from the reading that they'll subconsciously use writing. We don't have to worry about them being able to, as seniors or juniors or sophomores, pass one required by the federal government, one reading <laughs> test, read way over test, because they will have the reading skills that they need. But instead, you know that by the time we get them in high school, Maybe out of a class of 100, 180 kids, I might have three kids that still love to read. Still they don't. And they, they, they don't understand that there are people, there could be people who love to read for fun because when they think of reading, like you said, they think of the one page passage that's destined to be followed by questions. About the author's purpose and... Uh, Things you know, that generally don't matter. Like I, when I read, like my favorite book of all time is The Outsiders. I've read it over a hundred times. I love it. I love it. I love it. I don't care why Essie Hinton wrote The Outsiders. That is not, I don't read it to figure out why she wrote it. I read it literally every year, several times a year. I've taught it, I think six years. The reason I read it and the reason I taught it, even when it wasn't forced, is because those kids, there was somebody in that book who reminded me of me. And it, at different stages of my life, it was different people. Like when I was younger, I, I thought I was Pony Boy. I loved writing. I loved reading. I didn't give my full effort in school. As I got older in high school, I got a little more dark. I had a little bit darker times. I was sure I was Dally. Um, as I got older when I was in college I was too big I was goofy I was I was fun loving then I got much older and I started taking care of not just my younger siblings but my friends and I became dairy and I understood perspective point of view which are questions that you'll get three questions on author purpose and one question on point of view and that's the question that really translate into real life is being able to understand somebody else's point of view analyze it sympathize with it and still figure out so this is why you made that decision but this is why this other person was upset with your decision like I understand not just why Derry wouldn't let Ponyboy go out on its own 
but why Ponyboy wanted to go out on his own. I understand both. And that helps me sympathize with Soda, who understood both. And who was caught in the middle. Right. And I don't, and I think that part is lost because we're, you can't answer that in a multiple choice. No. And I, my probably best and most fun time teaching was under a particular principal at my previous school, but not, not that there's anything wrong with the ones that came after, but one particular principal, he had been an English teacher. And he allowed me to do a totally novel-based English class. And we did non-typical, it was a football crazy farming community, but yes, we did the outsiders. We also did bleachers by Tom Grisham okay. because the kids could really relate to it. Uh, it's a great novel if you've never read it. Um, and a wide variety of, of novels of, from different time periods. Those kids that still stay in touch with me on Facebook, they're readers. They will actually be posting on Facebook. I just finished this book. It is so awesome. And, you know, you need to read, not to me, but like to each other, to their contemporaries. They, and that's what is really important. Now, granted, it wasn't star, it was tax. Mm -hmm. But teaching a novel-based class, I never had a student fail the tax test. Right. Never had a student fail it. I mean, all done with teaching through novels and right. creating, we didn't do uh, a bunch of little silly multiple choice things. I did sometimes use question stems to stimulate class discussion. So they were used to the, we right. did things they carried. Um, and also another one that's a Vietnam book called Fallen Angels. That's a great one. And I kind of connected those two together and Yes, we did mocking, to Kill a Mockingbird, which I know is not fashionable anymore, but we, I compared it, we did it with A Child Caught It, because when I taught Mockingbird, our focus was on how did this town let Boo Adley happen? Mm -hmm. And so we used the abuse in A Child Called It, which was, because if you remember tax, I don't know if you remember tax, but they, I had, to, they had to do a fiction and a nonfiction right. piece that had similar themes. So I paired Bleachers with Friday Night Live. So you, I, mean, if you, right. I said it was novel, but some of them were. And uh, never had a kid fail the test um, and created a generation of people who love to read. Because out of all of these books we did, they may not have liked all of them, but nearly every kid found um, a book that they liked. And I had some, one. Yeah, and some of those would just walk off the shelf. And I honestly didn't mind. They were paperbacks. I figured if a kid took a particular book home because they were so in love with it that that was a book in that home and that was yeah. more useful than one on my bookshelf yes I lost I used to tell people I would have to go to when I was teaching especially middle school English I would lose 30 bucks books a year because we did the mandatory silent reading and I had a great admin team again that focused on and maybe this is me being biased. Maybe the math teachers didn't think they were great. But as an English teacher, we focused on English. Um, and they gave us double blocked English. And they made sure we had time to do reading, silent reading, class reading. Pick a novel and the whole class can read. Each class can pick, y'all can pick a theme and the kids can pick a book from that. But they didn't care. Just read and discuss. Not read and answer questions. Read and discuss. Um, and so that really shaped who I was as a teacher 
but it also was right in my wheelhouse because that's what I did as a student. I can remember one book from every year that I read that changed my life. Like Hatchet in sixth grade changed my life because then I read Brian's Winter and Brian's Return. And Mm -hmm. literally everything else got like, I read Dog Song. Gary Paulson was my favorite writer. He's he's an awesome writer. Like three years. I read um, The Outsiders as a seventh grader. So then I also read That Was Then, This Is Now because that's what S.E. Hinton wrote next. Next. As an eighth grader, I read Monster, which led me down the road of every other Walter Myers book. And there's been several more now because he was, I think Monster might have been his, I, don't quote me on this, y'all. I think Monster might have been his first book, but it was definitely the first one I was introduced to. And I don't remember there being tons of others while I was there. In ninth grade, for the first time, I, I read all the way through the Harry Potter series in ninth grade in one, like, it may have taken me two months to read all Harry Potter books because the last book came out when I was a ninth grader. Um, In 10th grade, I read Divergent. In 11th grade, I read Hunger Games. And these really opened up who I was. I got really big into John Green in college, as a freshman in college. And so I read um, Will Grayson, Will Grayson. I read A Fault in Our Stars. I read Looking for Alaska. Like, times in my life were separated by the books I was reading. And the books I was reading not only helped me learn more about me, but helped me get through things that I was going through so I could get to that next chapter in life. And I think by doing the standardized testing, just to join you on your soapbox, Mm -hmm. we are stilling learning. We are taking away the education part of education and making it assessing. So like we're no longer teachers, we're no longer educators, we're assessors. We don't teach. The first, second, and third grade teachers, they teach. The fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh grade teachers, they do a lot of facilitating. By the time you get to middle school and high school, we're just assessing. Have you, because the the, the 10th grade start isn't even written on a 10th grade level. It's written on a sixth grade level. So we're not assessing whether you learned what what we were supposed to teach you this year, whether you can read things that we taught this year. We're assessing whether you learned stuff from sixth and fifth grade. Like, did you learn how to read and write as a seventh grader in ninth grade? Did you learn how to read and write as an eighth grader in 10th grade? By your junior year, can you understand the sixth, seventh, and eighth grade reading and writing that you did and put it together as an 11th grader? And if you still haven't understood it, then senior year, you'll have to test one more time just to make sure. And if you pass, then you're fine. So we don't, we don't really get the luxury of being educators anymore. We don't get the luxury of teaching because what we were doing to teach, even in the midst of standardized testing, was the current events, as you said. That's how we were teaching. Look at the world around you. Look at how it affects you. Look at how these things you didn't think affected you. Look at how they affect you. And they may not affect you directly, but look at how they affect these people and these people affect you. And now we don't even get to do that, which is making education very difficult. Yeah, so, my last walk off the book sh- bookshelf book, uh-huh. uh, the year it came out, before the English department bought any, I ordered like six copies of The Hate You Give oh, and had God. them numbered with my name on them. One, two, three, four, five, six. The only book that's still on my shelf is book six. And the kids ask sometimes, why does this have a number on it? And it's six. Where are the other five? I said, they're in somebody's house. They were mine, not the school's. So 
after that, the department bought some, so like every English teacher got like two or three copies. But I had read reviews about it as soon as it came out, and I'm going, I have to have that book on my shelves. Yeah, it. The Hate You Give was the last book I read that changed the way I thought about the world. Um, which also is how often I, I read now. But I, I think everybody should read it. And I am surprised that it's on one of those, some people's list to take off of the, out of the schools. Almost immediately, I think it was put on the 100 most, ban, uh, the 100 banned books list, almost immediately. Um, which is crazy to me because it's just saying pay attention to these things not these people are bad just look look at our experience look at my experience understand the experience that I have to go through and they and people are like nope we don't want to know your experience but that leads me to our last question because I don't want to take up too much of your time I think I know we've talked too long already 80 minutes no I I'm good to talk all day, but also know you have to go to school in the morning. Um, but what keeps you going? What keeps you in education with everything that's gone on, everything that's changed, the political climate, the fact that it's significantly easier to lose your job and you've put in your time. You could, and you're actually, I think I want to say you're the first guest I've had that you could retire and not lose anything. Like you have all of the benefits of it. So what keeps you coming back every year? Part of it's what you just said though. The very fact that I'm not, I hate to use the word trapped, but some people are sort of trapped. They have to be there. Uh, that I know that if there were ever the day, and there've been a few days it's been close, I'll be honest, where you think I can't do this anymore. Um, I could turn in that letter of resignation mm-hmm. instantly. I mean, they could freeze my teaching certificate, but if you were retiring, that doesn't right. impact anything. Um, most of the time, I still think it's fun. Maybe I shouldn't admit that, but yeah. Most of the time, I still think it's fun. I absolutely love some things about the job still, and I love creating lessons. I don't mean doing the endless amount kind of lesson plans that we're talking about that people had. I love creating lessons, coming up with ways to structure something I want the kids to learn and come up with something hopefully somewhat creative to and scaffolded and supported so they can actually do it. And right now I'm in the middle of tricking my kids into writing sonnets. They have to, the curriculum says the seniors have to write a poem. Mm -hmm. we just don't call it a sonnet I gave them a beautiful picture of an autumn landscape and they're writing uh, 14 lines of poetry with a particular rhyme pattern (laughs) and they're to write about either what they're seeing in the picture or how it makes them feel Mm -hmm. and I'm never using the word sonnet but you know what they're going to have when they finish a sonnet they're going to have written sonnets Uh, and um I think that's fun. And the next we're going to do, it's the curriculum says one, but we're going to do two. There's an incredible uh, spoken word poem from uh, Louder Than a Bomb, if you know that documentary. But it's the one that, uh, I think it's Venables, but I always forget her first name. She's talking about what it was like growing up in her home. And I, we're going to watch it. And then I'm going to have them write a free verse poem to me about what it was like growing up in their home. And those, that's what I think is still fun. 
that that is I don't want to say it's amazing because I I knew those things. I know that anyone who works with you knows that you enjoy your job. Like you you still light up when kids get things. You still light up when you get a fresh idea or you hear something creative and it makes you think I've seen you spend hours planning lessons that will take 30 to 40 minutes. I've seen you gather materials and and dig through the questions. So I know that that's like, I know as someone who's worked with you and gotten to watch you in your element, how, how much passion you have still for the job, which I think is a testament, not just to who you are, but I think it just validates. I think it qualifies that you are absolutely right. And you were absolutely right 40 years ago. This is your calling. Um, God definitely put you on earth to educate all of our kids, no matter where they come from, no matter what their background is. That is what you were called to do. That is your purpose. And I think you have lived in that. And I think that shows in the relationships you've built, not just with students, but with your coworkers. I think that's built. I think that's evident in just the longevity you've had and the fact that you can still love what you're doing actively so long after you started through so many different politics, so many different racial injustices and racial inequalities and racial just just racial systems. The system of education has changed so much and the world we live in, we still call it the United States of America, but the United States that we live in in 2022 is a totally different United States of America than we lived in in even 2002 and 1992 and 1982. And so the fact that you've been able to adjust and adapt and still give your kids everything they need to get to that next level is just, it speaks volumes to not just who you are as an educator, but to who you are as a person. Um, And so because of that, I'm gonna ask for that one last piece of advice, your public servant announcement to, it can be as specific as to be just to educators, but it can also just be the public servants, people who work to serve, serve others. What is one thing you would share with them? If I had to give one bit of advice is to trust your instincts. Um, If you feel this is something that is a right fit for you, if you feel it's something your students need, when the door to that classroom closes, teach them what you know they need to learn. And y'all, that's it. That's that's it. Um, Trust your instincts. Teach the kids what they know they need to, what you know they need to learn. Um, and that's coming straight from the mouth of an expert. She, I don't think she would ever call herself that. Um, but that is what she's, that's what she is. I've seen it. I've witnessed it as a coworker. I've had students that she taught that came directly to my class after hers. I've taught with her on the same level. So I know, I know what it is. I know that when Miss Smith gets kids, they learn. And that is the ultimate goal of a teacher, of an educator. And she meets them where they are and she gets them where they need to be. And the fact that she does that over and over again and has done that over and over again, for again, I'm going to say four decades, is absolutely admirable. She has done what a lot of us young teachers go into teaching hoping to do. She's done that plus some. And so... I have to, again, thank her for joining us on Public Servants Announcements. Um, And I have to let y'all know this is 
another masterclass in education and just longevity in the service industry. Thank you. You're welcome. So thank you all again for listening. And this has been another episode of Public Servants Announcement.